Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of CRO Wisdom. I'm delighted to have today with us Linda Tuck Chapman, who is the CEO of the Third Party Risk Institute and Ontala Performance Solutions. Linda also comes to us from a background where she was the Chief Procurement Officer and Head of Supplier Management, Third Party Risk Management at Scotiabank, Fifth Third Bank, and the BMO Financial Group. Linda, welcome. Thank you very much. And thanks for having me here today. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Linda, let's start first with whenever I'm talking to risk leaders, they have very different stories about how they ended up in risk. So let's let's hear your story about how did your career in risk management start? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing. I, obviously, I came out through the procurement stream. And back in uh, as early as 2000, the Canadian regulators started really looking at uh, what they thought they should do in terms of, of, at the time, vendor risk management. Those were early days for me. That was actually when I was at Scotia. So I'd already been at BMO. And, you know, in procurement, you do look at risk, but not in the way that we do today. And when I was with Scotia, I had the good fortune to work with the regulators uh, through my, my role at Scotiabank and start to form their, the first guidance in terms of third-party risk. And it was very compliance-focused, right? It was really trying to get a handle on on uh, what compliance requirements that you had. And basically, at that point in time, it was pretty much a reporting function to determine who you're outsourcing to and where, which is a bit tricky, right? So uh, at Scotiabank, Scotia is a very, very international bank. And at the time, they were in 48 countries. So it's a little hard to say when you're outsourcing <laughs> to, a, to a foreign country. So anyhow, so that was really when I got into it. And I've always had a real interest in it because I, I recall one of the senior vice presidents at the bank saying to me, how do we know where the goalposts are for what we can know at source and what we can't? And I thought, gosh, that is such a good question. I really going to have to spend some time thinking about it. So anyhow, so that's really where it started. And then I went to, uh, in 2004, I went to Fifth Third Bank. And it's certainly no secret that they had some regulatory challenges at the time. And I had the great good fortune to, uh, to work for Greg Carmichael, who is their CEO now. And at the time, he was COO. And he was very clear. He came from manufacturing. He had a very good handle on supply chain, which is different, obviously, than, than the services that support a financial institution. We had a lot of regulatory attention because of the problems the bank had had. At that point in time, I remember the regulators coming in and saying, OK, so so we want to see all of your technology contracts. Right. We want to look at the risk profile. And I thought, well, that's probably not exactly what you really mean. So let's think about what 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 would be helpful in terms of understanding the risk that that bank had acquired through its its uh, its technology contracts. At the time, also, I was on the operational risk committee for uh, Fifth Third Bank and brought a lot of, of new ideas because at the time, operational risk was really focused on fraud and teller losses. So this added a really interesting and meaty new dimension for the bank to, to contemplate. So anyhow, so it, it kind of went from there. I started uh, on Teleperformance Solutions in 2008. I, I, I took the big plunge, right? I, I left that job uh, with a very, very good bank, and I started my own business consulting. And, uh, and good and bad, fairly quickly after that, the financial crisis hit. And that's when I really started getting into third-party risk management. Because at that point in time, uh, I think that it was on the minds of CEOs everywhere. Who are we doing business with and what risks do they present to us? And I would say most companies at that time could not answer that question, right? So that's not that long ago. So, you know, it goes from there, right? I could go on and on, but yeah. I, have to, 
I love this topic because there's so much to learn. Things change all the time. And third-party risk, you know, that's what I focus on entirely. So Linda, very clear. You've been involved from the very early stages as regulators started to think about outsourcing, supply chain risk. And then as you think about from a bank perspective, the right words that a financial service institution uses is third-party risk management. So let's bring you to today because I know during COVID, you took all this knowledge, this wisdom that you gained over these years, and I've written not just one book, but two books. Tell us a little bit about it and what could the audience take away from those books? The first book that I wrote, published by Risk Management Association, is really about the the why, the what and the why of third-party risk management. Because third-party risk management can be thought of as, as its own type of risk, when in fact it is a very, very broad topic, uh, which is all operational risk. So in the first book, I really wanted to explain, you know, where did all this come from? What does it actually mean? How does it fit together? And what should you know about it if you're in a leadership role or have to support third-party risk management or, in fact, if you're in business, right? So I really wrote from that lens. And I wrote it to, it's probably more like at the graduate level, right? Because it's really aimed at, at an audience that already is grounded in third-party risk. I mean, there's just so much to learn. And how do you take these concepts and really turn them into something useful? The second book that I've written will be published this fall by Institute for Internal Auditors. So uh, they carry my book and my first book in their bookstore and they approached me and asked me if I would write a book for auditors. Well, I'm not an auditor myself, but I do know where they were going with this. So the second book that I've written is uh, Third-Party Risk Management, A Practical Guide. The first one is Third-Party Risk Management, Driving Enterprise Value, and this is a practical guide. So it should be published in the fall. I'm just in final edits with them. And it's more about the what and the how, right? So try and put the pieces together so that you're more at the ground level, trying to understand the totality of third-party risk and what should you think of when you're putting a program in place. So the reason why it will be helpful for an auditor in particular is that it should guide them through the thinking in terms of how does this work? You've got a program and then you've got the execution and it right. touches so many, many parts of the of, of an enterprise. What, what should they know about just not just the program, but how it's implemented? That's great, Linda. Good to hear. You know, this uh, point about internal auditors. In my risk business, we see that very often, that more and more they're paying attention to the third-party risk management programs, and they want to be able to see evidence how well it's run. And the other point I wanted to reinforce what you said uh, really for the audience is don't think of third-party risk management as as a risk that's just thought of as how do you think about your third parties, but it truly is becoming an issue about operational risk management and operational resilience. And we're seeing that application also in supply chain management where it's become a must-have function. Well, and and I I like the fact you're focusing on business resilience and tool because in the long run, this is what it's all about. So when I wrote the first book, I thought about uh, companies operating in an extended enterprise. It was a term that I used very frequently a few years ago. But I'll tell you what I don't like about that term. It makes you feel like you're kind of in this evolving kind of an environment that you have little control over. The term I use now is uh, the extended enterprise. And if you start to think about your organization as operating as an extended enterprise, It puts you more in the driver's seat, but also helps you think more intentionally about how you're delivering either goods and services to your clients or core services to your employees. So when you think about the extended enterprise and how it all fits together, 
it makes a lot more sense that you're going to understand how all the component pieces work, not just how do you work and then, and then you know, sort of what do you need to know about your vendors, quote unquote. Absolutely. Linda, I remember 15 years ago talking to Rob Carter, CIO at FedEx, who said to me that when he thought about his vendors, he actually integrated that labor pool right into his organization because they were absolutely his extended enterprise. Good point there. Let's tap into your expertise on some of the challenges that companies are facing today. Until the pandemic hit, I, I think that we were, there's still a lot of organizations that A, had not invested anything in third-party risk management, or B, were still really uh, treating it like something over here that we had to comply with. There's a lot of highly regulated industries. So it was kind of like, well, maybe it's cyber or maybe it's GDPR or maybe it's compliance for something. And what the pandemic has done is really caused the C-suite and their board members to think quite differently about, about uh, the extended enterprise and where third-party relationships fit in. Because depending on the industry you're in, there was either like, a lot of panic and not a lot of bad things happening, or maybe not enough panic and action because bad things were definitely happening to your supply base, to your third parties, and you know different parts of the world were going through these waves of, of, of uh, different impact. And I think that what it's done is really woken us all up to a lot of new concepts. So let me tell you about the first thing. First of all, that concept of business resilience. I, I really like that, Atula, because that has to be why you're doing this. In order to give you a more resilient enterprise than you would have if you weren't entirely sure who was doing what for you and whether or not they were protecting you from harm. So the second thing that I would think about is going into the pandemic, what I've been teaching through my books and through my certification program is really the separation of the concept of criticality. The criticality of the relationship itself or the activities it supports is all inward looking, right? And then the other thing you wanna look at is exposure to risk, right? How do you know you're exposed to the risk and what types of risk? And after you examine the controls, what's the residual risk, right? So that's very fundamental. So I, I still see organizations trying to combine those things, but nonetheless, I mean, the practice has been that they're separate concepts. What the pandemic really hit home uh, for me was, was a concept that I sort of, it was kind of on the periphery for me, but now I think it needs to, it needs to be part of core programs. And that is, what does it take to, to deliver a dollar of revenue? If you were to look at that differently than you did before the pandemic, what you would really look at is the combination of, of third parties and your own resources to deliver different products and services to your clients. And when you're at that third dimension, criticality, exposure to risk, and impact on revenue, it would cause you to think very differently about your tiering system, right? Your relationship segmentation has forced organizations to focus on their their most critical relationships, which in most cases are with these big, very well-run third parties, and kind of not spend as much attention uh, or pay as much attention on you, on the lower tiers. And what we learned with the pandemic is that's probably not wise because that's often where the gap is, right? That's the point of failure, not the big guys. It's further down the food chain. Yeah, Linda, I think you bring up a great point, which is one of my big concerns in the marketplace today is that there's an inordinate focus on cyber. Yes. And cyber definitely is a huge risk, but if you were to look at any cyber major incident that occurs and you look back over a period of six months, 12 months, you can actually see that there was inherent risk in other areas where this risk exposure was clear. 
employee right. employee loss, governance issues, moving into high risk areas. So you saw that actually challenges take place that then actually evolve into a cyber risk. So when you think about that as a discipline and companies are moving more and more to ongoing monitoring, Linda, talk to us about both the pros and and really the challenges of adopting ongoing and continuous monitoring. Well, continuous monitoring is still kind of elusive, as you know, because most organizations, when they build their third-party risk management program, a lot of organizations are still only assessing exposure to risk and the control environment when they get into the relationship itself. And then it kind of falls away and they might go back to it when the contract renews, but there's not much between that contract signing and the renewal date, right? It's left up to the business and the cyber basically are are a reaction to an event that's happening. But you hit on a really important point, which is the control environment is not single isolated components. So if you focus strictly on cyber controls, you decided, well, I'm going to look for access controls and pen testing and, and this laundry list of items, that's actually not going to cover it for you. Because what you described was insider threat, right? HR yep. security threat, perhaps a physical security threat. And it's really, if you ha- you have to weave the things together to determine what the actual exposure is. And when you're seeing deficiencies in more than one area, that should be a bit of a red flag. So that's basically where you start. And then when it comes to continuous monitoring, there are really great services that are coming on online. So we, we see them, the most common one, of course, is for financial health. And then there's quite a few companies out there now that will cyber for, or they'll, uh, they'll monitor for cyber attacks, you know, if there's a lot of chatter about companies, et cetera. So that, that can allow you to have at least an early warning system if something's going on with your critical third parties. And if you know who has your data or who has access, et cetera, then you're better prepared. That's not the whole story, right? So what we're not seeing, though, are other forms of continuous monitoring. And that's really where things kind of fall down. So, so Linda, you're absolutely correct. So, so Linda, when when I think about continuous monitoring, we think of them as kind of like seven risk domains, right? So financial, cyber, those are most common that companies look at. Compliance, Mm -hmm. operations, and operations thinking about kind of, you know, the impact on employees, your own infrastructure and others. ESG locations and nth party. And so the way we think about that is if all these seven risk domains were continuous and ongoing, now very often you have an early warning system in place because you can see deterioration in one area. And COVID is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember that you know uh, Supply Wisdom put out a release on January 2nd talking about this health and employee issue, right, which is basically the health issue impacting potentially your employees needing to quarantine and health resources. So what started as a localized location issue very soon expanded into a global issue, impacted employees, and very soon when employees moved to work from home, impacted infrastructure, financial health, and guess what, started to result in many, many cyber. Service exists, right? Supplierism does that today in all these seven domains. But Linda, the area that I want to ask you is how do companies prepare, or as you think about organizations, if all those seven risk domains they were ingesting continuously, how do you think they have to change their risk management programs to actually handle that kind of uh, risk-finding volume in a sense, right? Well, we're not using technology particularly effectively at the moment. Right. There's there are very, very good solutions out there. There's um, basically there's and I'm, you're, you're a company that fits in this sort of broad reg tech 
right? So reg tech is anything that allows you to comply with regulations. So it's, it, and even if you're not in a highly regulated industry, you can still use reg tech because part of the problem is that there are companies that don't even invest in a third-party risk management platform today, and they expect their people to stay on top of everything. It's actually impossible. You, you just bury them with yep. task management. They cannot get involved in risk management. They don't have any time. So better use of technology to allow you to really have a better look at the portfolio is, is really your first step. So if you don't have a platform in the first place, you really need to find a way to create a business case that says this is the only way, this is the only sensible path forward, right? So that's number one. Number two is people try to integrate with too many things, right? So like you don't have to do that anymore, right? RPA and different types of tools like a Spotify or a Tableau can allow you to have systems to talk to each other without actually integrating. So I think that, you know, it's a bit of a fool's game trying to integrate everything because by the time you're done, everything will be out of date anyways. <laughs> so Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. So that's number one, right? Start with that and also start with an end in mind. So where do you want to go with all the information they're ingesting and how are you going to get it more efficiently? So the, the use of AI, for example, and it's probably not exactly AI, it's not really intelligence per se, but it is a way to really speed up the ingesting of a lot of data. So one of the areas that I think is a real black hole is negative news monitoring. I'd love to see a company come up with a better solution for that because what happens basically is you expect the business or somebody to monitor for negative news about their third parties. But if they put a, say, a Google alert, they're just going to be bombarded. So when you put too Absolutely. much noise in the system, they, they, they don't know how to sort it out. So I guess where I'm really going is that, you know, figure out where you need to spend your, your energy and then start to think about how can technology support that. So even for financial health, I mean, doing financial analysis on companies yourself makes no sense when there's really great solutions out there that can just give you alerts if things are changing. Linda, I think you bring up a great point in terms of how does one use automation data science and to the audience. There's mm -hmm. an interview on CRO Wisdom uh, that I interviewed Jim Routh and Jim Routh, who was formerly the chief security officer at Aetna, CVS, Mass Mutual, really talks about kind of how he uses data science and automation. Linda, let's turn the conversation kind of back to you, uh, successful risk leader, and people always want to know, especially when you think about professionals that are trying to grow their roles and their contributions in risk management, what resources did you rely on and you still rely on to make yourself a better risk leader? One of the things that I think is probably underemphasized is soft skills, right? In the long run, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? And a lot of people do get very focused on, on the rules or the policy or the regulations, but it needs to be about the business. And that's the first thing that I would suggest to, to anybody who is looking to advance their careers is try to look at everything you do through the lens of the business, right? They're not your clients, right? They are your business partners. They have a job to do and it's your job to support them. So whatever you need to do to understand their business better, I think is the number one investment that you should make in, in yourself and in, in them. And then it comes to, well, where can you go to learn? And there's a lot of great forums. I mean, this is really a great forum that you're putting out there. There are organizations that you can join. I mean, I'm trying to build a network. It's it's a slow slog, but I'm trying to build a network of third-party risk management professionals and people who are interested because you need a place to go for conversation. I have the great good fortune of being the subject matter expert for Risk Management Association. And we have a third-party risk management roundtable that I run for them twice a year. 
And that gets me in the room in candid conversations with a group of 35 executives, but that's our limit, right? 35 executives who are accountable for third-party risk management. And it's Cambridge rules, right? That we don't repeat what happens outside of the meeting, but we have an organized conversation around the topics that, uh, that, that are of greatest interest. So during the pandemic, we had uh, we had weekly one-hour meetings for 12 weeks. <laughs> a lot to talk about because people are trying to figure out well what to do. And listening to your peers in an organized or facilitated conversation is a great way to learn. There's other things you can do. Obviously, I have a certification program. There's books you can read. And whether you're in the sector or not, the financial services sector in North America has done a very, very good job with this. So the OCC in particular uh, has uh, has good, very good guidance um, and and followed very closely by the Fed. Uh, if you look to Singapore, the, the MAS has done a very good job. There's new regulations in um, in the UK focused on business resilience and brings in this concept of revenue. Right? So if you look around, you don't need to make this stuff up. And if you're new to it or you're building a new program in your organization, you don't have to learn the same mistakes that other people have made yourself, right? You can just see what they've done, what works and what doesn't work, and you can build from there. And that's really, it's networking and it's being open-minded. I mean, oh gosh, I sure don't know everything. And I've, I've been focused on this for years. And it's also listening to other people, right? So what else could I say? And I should also mention some of the .orgs like NIST and ISO. I mean, they're very, very good materials as well as does um, uh, the COSO, COSO Treadway Commission. Linda, that's really helpful. I think you've highlighted some, some great resources, both from an organization perspective, networking perspective, and knowledge perspective. Let me, let me end by asking you one final question. So Bloomberg recently in an article declared risk manager a hot job. Well, isn't that interesting? It sort of reminds me of the rise, <clears throat> the rise of the CIO. You remember when the head of technology was <clears throat> kind of along there with everybody else? So we had the rise of the CIO, and then we had the rise of the CISO, and now we have the rise of the risk professional. So I think that, you know, risk is, a lot of people think it's a very dry subject, sort of like procurement, right? Like people think it's a it's a narrow field, when in fact it's not. So a chief risk officer has the ears and the hearts and the minds and the hopes of not just their peers at the senior level, but of the board and the CEO. Because if they if they do a really good job of building a sensible risk framework and giving the organization good tools to help them manage within the risk appetite, not over it and not under it, the company will be much more successful. And I'm delighted to see risk coming to the forefront because it can add so much value to an organization. You know, it helps to, to protect their employees, their shareholders and their customers from harm. And they have a much more robust bottom line. And what's wrong with that? Absolutely. Linda, thank you so much for making time today. And especially, I'm delighted that you also reinforce for the audience. As you think about risk management, understand that it's a operations and operations resilience function that can have a tremendous positive impact when done well on revenue and, of course, the profitability of the company. Linda, thanks again. And we look forward to seeing your second book come out. Thanks for inviting me today. I appreciate thank it. Thank you.